Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. Today, we talk about Bannon, Buttigieg, the supply chain, Ahmad Aubrey, and how you can help Democrats win in Virginia. And Jesse Daniels joins us for our interview. She's an expert on internet manifestations of racism and the author of the new book, Nice White Ladies, the truth about white supremacy, our role in it, and how we can help dismantle it. All of that, plus our reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. I can't wait to hear this interview that you have with Jesse Daniels. Um, nice white ladies. We got to talk about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, an important uh, and really, really, you know, sometimes challenging, but great conversation to have. Her book is is really exciting. So I'm excited for everyone to hear it. I like when we have challenging conversations. Sometimes, you know, we've talked about this in the past. We're all on the same page. We're all moving towards the same thing. Sometimes it's good to, you know, really kind of think about what we can all do to improve. There's always room for improvement. Absolutely. And we've said this before, too. Not only should we have challenging conversations, but we should have imperfect conversations. I think that's mm. that's a, a problem sometimes when we do this work uh, and, and we're fighting for equality and we're fighting for social and racial justice that, you know, you want to be perfect in the way that you say things or do things. And we're all learning and trying to grow and be better humans. And if we don't give people who are coming to this space um, the the leeway to have imperfect conversations, um, then uh, we're, we're not going to be inclusive in the way that we want to be. So I, I think that that's really important that we're able just to sit down and have conversations that are hard and and not uh, not be judgmental about you know people who are trying to do this work but maybe haven't accumulated all the knowledge yet. I, I put myself in that class. I, I always am looking to learn more and um, and be a better human on this planet. So amazing life goal. I love it. <laughs> yeah. um, so in a few minutes we're going to talk about, Nice white ladies, but first we need to talk about the crazy Republican demons talking about Steve Bannon. God. <laughs> I'm not sure how else to refer to him. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to refer to him, um, but uh, I do know that Congress is going to be referring him to the authorities. See what I did there? Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, we're, I guess as we're recording, we're waiting for Congress to um, to vote on him being held accountable for his refusal to answer the subpoena to the January 6th commission. That will certainly uh, be approved by Congress. So um, he's trying to exert executive privilege as instructed by former President Trump. Uh, he has none. Trump has none. Biden has uh, has waived that executive privilege and made clear that he does not support that. We can't say enough horrible things about Bannon, but it, it does behoove me to mention that he was in Virginia last week leading a rally for um, the Virginia election for Glenn Youngkin, or Glenn Trumpkin, as we like to call him, <laughs> who is um, Terry McAuliffe's challenger. 
Uh, attendees there uh, did a pledge of allegiance to a flag that was at the January 6th insurrection. Um, And uh, it just crazy stuff. And of course, Trump called in to endorse Trumpkin for, I think, the sixth (laughs) time now. You know, he really, really, really uh, doesn't want Democrats to hold on to Virginia. Uh, The the crazy, I don't even know that Youngkin actually wants the endorsement. <laughs> it keeps coming. And when he, so Youngkin wasn't even at this this rally that was held in his honor, I guess. Um, but when reporters told him about the Pledge of Allegiance thing, he was like, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> no shit, Glenn. It's so weird. What are these people doing? Why on earth would you... I, I don't know. And they were so proud that the flag had, had been used in, in the insurrection. The, it's, oh, it's and, and and the nice the nice white lady who was introducing right. the flag <laughs> right. made a point of saying it was a peaceful demonstration right. uh, on January 6th, um, which just shows this bananas alternate ecosystem of facts that um, that they live in because, you know, I don't know if you've seen these or not, but there's a lot of video about the insurrection on January 6th. Um, New video. It, there's a lot of it, and it really doesn't look like they were sitting in a circle singing Kumbaya together. It looks... Yeah. It was actually really terrifying and violent. So, yeah, they should talk to those officers who testified in tears before Congress that, you know, talking about how they thought they were going to die and and ask them if it was peaceful um, from their point of view. But, um, you know, the, the Virginia election is just a couple of weeks away this part of the nonsense will be over soon. We're going to have calls to action coming up in a few minutes so that you can make sure that um, the types of people who are going to um, pledge allegiance to a flag that was used at the insurrection uh, don't win this upcoming race. Very important. All right. Those are the big takeaways. Bannon, trash, don't let them win in Virginia. Yeah. All right. That's that's it. That's the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining, everyone. We'll see you next week. Uh, the other thing that we we got to talk about that's I think top top of everyone's mind, of course, is um, it, it's like a it's a strange twofold type story. It's the supply chain and it's Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, and okay. the, the two are very tied together. And here's what I'll say about the supply chain stuff: the supply chain is clearly disrupted because of the pandemic and labor shortages and, uh, you know, the ports being backed up and so many things. There's no denying that. Um, the sky is not falling. And I think what it's, what this disruption and slowdown is showing us is that our expectations as consumers Mm. have become so really unrealistic. Like we couldn't have expected that everything we could possibly want would be available immediately and either on a shelf or at our door within 24 to 48 hours. Amazon has done a very good job of training us to think that that's possible, but it's not. And so 
this idea that um, I think this is from what I've seen, this is being pushed as you better order your Christmas toys now so that they'll get there. They'll get here in time, because if you wait, you're not going to get the care bear that you want, that your kid wants. And maybe it's because my kid doesn't want anything yet. I'm I was going to okay. say, does, is he into Care Bears? <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with not having exactly what I I need. I need, you know, what I need. Like I need diapers and affordable milk and that sort of thing. But there are things that I want that it might take me a little longer to get. Mm. And you know, I'm okay with that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's it, a combination of factors, of course. Uh, our old how Louis DeJoy, who brings us no joy, uh, right. has, That's the other thing. has mucked up our postal service. And um, so, uh, so yeah, probably a good idea. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm a last minute shopper anyway. So I'm, I'm, I always have supply uh, chain issues when it comes to Christmas time, <laughs> the holidays. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a great point. You know, I, I really... I want it now. Like I order it and and when does it come? I mean this this goes to <laughs> you know our expectations over the pandemic have changed. Also um people are being really mean to restaurant workers. Uh, right. You know, I think this is all part of the same thing because the restaurant industry has has experienced slowdowns too. Yeah. And uh, and they're like where's my, you know, Corned beef hash. I don't know why. I haven't eaten yet this morning. That sounds good. Where are my <laughs> corned beef hash? Where's Where's my eggs? My eggs are cold. You know, this was just, these are direct quotes from me yesterday. But anyway, <laughs> people are being mean to restaurant workers and, and stop it unless it's justified like it was for me yesterday. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, maybe I'll feel differently in a few years when Jackson wants, I don't even know what kids play tamagotchis is that what they play with these days i don't know uh maybe when he's desperate for that i will be very irritated by all of this but at the moment i'm like ah okay that candle holder i wanted isn't available oh well all right anyway. <laughs> good advice take a breath you know do some planning do your shopping early probably not a bad idea to do that but um uh yeah we we or make make all your stuff this I year. I want it now, mummy. I want yes, it right now. Very Violet Beauregard. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the other piece of this is um, that Pete Buttigieg, as Secretary of Transportation, um, is being is shouldering the responsibility of the, the supply chain disruptions. And he recently took paternity leave because he and his husband adopted two babies. And the man, are the right wingers pissed off about this? Like, come on. That's what you're supposed to do when you have a baby, take leave. And that's what everybody should be able to do. And good for him for setting the example. And I hope that employers across the country look at that and say, okay, this is normal. Our, our employees should take 12 weeks off when they have a new baby because that that's hard. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And um, uh, I uh, was very, very fortunate to be working from home when uh, Lucy was born. I'll say that my last point is if you are a a man who doesn't understand and you're a father and you don't understand what of why a dad would need paternity leave at any point, 
then you you probably weren't doing the first days of your child's life right because yeah. it's it's not what what they've been saying it's just breastfeeding what's the dad gonna do <laughs> oh <laughs> that's what kind of dad and partner you are great yeah yeah thanks um, for letting us know tucker carlson <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the most incredible time in our life for us it was harrowing we had some um right lucy was a preemie so um different situation for us but many people face that many people face you know i, I think uh, the notion of pregnancy is for people a lot of the times is just you know nine months you have a baby the baby grows up and that's you know and everything is cool but um pregnancies can be very challenging they're they're not all the same and there can be complications and there can be challenges early years of child's lives and um you know to have their parents be able to be there for their kids and for each other and to support each other is fundamental and we know that um that that paid leave is actually um you know if we look at the economics of that and the research behind it it's, it really helps oh, yeah. build stronger families in a stronger economy it's not taking away anything so yeah i, I thought that's what we all wanted stronger families but maybe not anyway yeah what else is on your mind this week? Let's see. Um, the Ahmad Arbery trial has mm -hmm. started with jury selection. Um, this is the black man who was out jogging in February 2020 in Georgia. He was chased down by two white men in a pickup truck and shot while their friend filmed it. And of course, this is one of the many reasons why so many people took to the streets in 2020, um, the jury selection is is going to be it's going to be a lengthy process, and it's focused on some of the biggest flashpoints that we've seen in our country in recent years: um, Black Lives Matter, the meaning of the Confederate flag. The shooters said that they were trying to make a citizen's arrest. Mm. Um, they were driving around with a rifle, making citizens' arrests, and um, I think that we've started to question the states that have these types of laws. Um, so a lot of challenging ideas and conversations in this, the defense attorneys appear to be trying to do this thing where they're like, this has nothing to do with race. What are we all talking mm. about? And it's clearly, um, I mean, just the, the first day, two days of jury selection, It's it's been about race and the horrifying things that happen in this country and you know, the symbols that uh, represent them. So yeah, I'm keeping an eye on that. We will keep an eye on that. And uh, yes, there's been a lot of horrifying videos that have come out in recent years. Uh, this one is one of the worst, literally mm -hmm. watching um, this young man get chased down and murdered in the street. It was... Uh, I, we'll we'll see uh, how they answer for that, but I, I can I can only imagine that there will there will be more righteous upheaval if justice is not served in this case. So, mm. so a lot to pay attention to this week, as always. Um, let's talk now about our hero of the week. You mentioned this hero of the week a while back. I'm so excited that she's going to be on the podcast. I'm excited to feature her. Um, Dylan George is a 16-year-old junior in high school. Um, 
and she got involved with Vote Forward and uh, and created a Vote Forward club at her high school and has nice. done so many great things. She's expanding it to other high schools. She's gotten all these other kids involved. But you don't need to hear it from me because Dylan was kind enough to send in a recording talking about what she's done. So let's hear from Dylan. Hi, Stephen Mariah. Thank you so much for having me on Swing Left today. I'm so excited to be here. I'm Dylan George, a 16-year-old junior at Winston Churchill High School with passions in government and activism. I first became involved with Vote Forward as a volunteer working on the Big Send nonpartisan initiative. I wrote letters encouraging citizens to vote as part of their civic duty. This was my first time volunteering in an election and it really made me look forward to a lifetime of activism. So about six months later, I was inspired by my previous work to cold email vote forward about a potential partnership with me and my high school. Club day for vote forward at Churchill was a massive success. We had over 70 new volunteers sign up for the club, all eager to write letters and to earn SSL hours. We also created an Instagram account for the club at vote forward at Churchill spelled V-O-T-E-F-W-D at Churchill. It is steadily gaining followers, and my officers and I are interactive with followers, responding to all questions. During our meeting times, club members write letters to potential voters as vote forward advocates. I feel like the nonpartisan aspect of the club also helps students bond. Not only are they earning SSL hours, but they feel unconstrained by political agendas and can truly connect with the voters they are writing to. Now that the Churchill chapter has been established, I'm hoping to branch out further. I'm currently looking to expand the club to other Montgomery County high schools, and I'm talking to students from Walt Whitman, Thomas S. Wooten, and RM High School about a vote forward club due to high interest at Churchill. We're also exploring virtual letter writing parties so we can better accommodate the time of more student volunteers. I truly believe that expanding the Vote Forward Club to other schools is a winning proposition for everyone involved. Thanks again for having me. Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you so much, Dylan, for the work that you're doing. So incredible. Dylan, George, our hero of the week. Let's talk about, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but let's really talk about this week's to-do list. Yeah, let Dylan be your role model and and take some take some action and and like we talked about there's only a couple weeks left before the election is over in Virginia, so there's still time to get involved and and make a difference. Yes. Less than 2 weeks. So, um Swing Left has made it easy. They've brought back their take action cards. I don't know if you've ever been on the on the website and seen the take action cards. They're pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, they just give you things to do that you can kind of cycle through and find the right fit for you. But right now, if you're in the area, go Canvas. Um, if you're not, please join a phone bank. You know, we talk about uh, this every week. We're really in crunch time, and I'm sure if you've been watching the news, it's it's out there. More people are talking about Virginia right now and how important this election is. Polls right. are, the polls are tight, and um, you know I have said repeatedly that this is not just a bellwether for voter enthusiasm, but also for volunteer enthusiasm. But mm. I don't want you to just like 
watch and see what happens and then decide, oh, geez, there wasn't enough volunteer enthusiasm. I really need to step up and get more involved. Um, let's make sure that that volunteer enthusiasm is really high so that we scare the heck out of the GOP coming into the midterms. And they know that we are there, we are strong, and um, let's not squeak this one by. Let's, let's really uh, send an overwhelming message. All right, swingleft.org. You can find your action items there. Um, we're going to be right back after this interview to talk about our reasons for hope. Jesse Daniels is an expert on internet manifestations of racism and the author of multiple books about white supremacy and digital sociology, including White Lies, Cyber Racism, and her newest book, Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Dismantle It. Her writing on race has also appeared in the New York Times, NPR, Forbes, and Newsweek. Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's our honor. Um, as I said in your intro, you're an expert on racism on the internet. Uh, there has been recent reporting that Facebook knew and knows that its algorithm helps to propagate hate and conspiracy theories, but they chose not to change it because those posts get more engagement and they make more money. How big of a problem is this to our society and how do we combat it in our own lives? Yeah, well, it's a great uh, question and a great, you know, complicated sociological problem. We're actually uh, in my digital sociology class, we're actually talking about Facebook right now. So this is all top of mind. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think that Facebook is real is a real problem for uh, places where we want to have democracy, right? Because democracy relies on an informed citizenry. And um, basically, Facebook's algorithms are jacking with, for lack of a better phrase, uh, our ability to have an informed citizenry. And that is really terrible news for all of us, you know, and that's happening at the same time for kind of related issues with this kind of collapse that we're seeing of journalism, right? So there are fewer and fewer journalists who are doing, you know, on the ground reporting from local, um, you know, voting districts or precincts, right. or whatever. Um, and and the combination of those two, right, the sort of decaying of uh, journalism at the same time, we have the rise and the ubiquity of Facebook, you know, is a, re is a real problem for any of us who are sort of attached to Democrats democratic outcomes in the places that we live. Um, and, and we're kind of, you know, wrestling with what to do about that now, you know, and I think that some of the proposals that are afoot in Congress are worth exploring. I think it's also, um, you know, it's really important to understand the algorithms that are feeding disinformation and racism and bigotry of all kinds. Yeah. Um, and that's such a complicated you know, conversation for people to have. And I think, you know, including people sitting in Congress, you know, it's very complicated. And they're just I've starting seen to some work people that in out. Congress yeah. really miss, really miss the mark on that, sadly. Right. I, I think I don't want us to get distracted, you know, by the the missteps of the the seniorocracy that rules Congress, yeah. you know. Um, but but I think it is important that we start to have more complicated 
um, conversations about what's really driving the kind of disinformation campaigns that we're seeing now. I, I started studying this a long time ago in the in the late you know 1990s and early 2000s, looking at um, the way that white supremacist groups on the far right were using early forms of um, disinformation and propaganda. Like there was a site called MartinLutherKing.org um, mm. that appear to be a tribute site to Dr. King, but as you sort of search further down in the site, you could see, oh, discuss MLK at Stormfront, which is one of the largest white supremacist portals online. So that kind of uh, disinformation through uh, digital media technologies has been with us for a long time. What's happened in the last uh, few years is that it's all gotten sped up you know, it's much, much faster at spreading because of the algorithms on social media. So the way I often explain it for people who are just new to thinking about algorithms, you know, when you go on a site and you shop for something and then that follows you everywhere, um, it's those algorithms that are sending us information. And we, um, and it's ad tech, you know, basically the whole reason that that works, that those uh, products follow us around and when we go to different websites is because they're trying to sell us stuff, right? It was totally and, innocent, just an effort for corporations to make huge amount of money based on our personal information, completely innocent motives. What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? <laughs> right. But as it turns out, that system that we've built of ad tech on these, you know, algorithmically driven platforms is a great way to spread disinformation. So we've really got to find a way to to dismantle and, and reverse engineer this terrible system that we're all living with now. Yeah. Um, I mean, one one thing that we always talk about with those algorithms, and we've had uh experts like you come on and talk about just little things that we can do. One one thing that uh, I always like to remind people is engagement is engagement, whether it's negative or positive. And the reason why all of these negative conspiracy theories and hate-filled posts get so much engagement is because people give it a an anger emoji or a thumbs down or they comment on it and it only makes it bigger. So I always encourage people to be very, very thoughtful about what they engage with um, and why they're engaging with it because ultimately they're only going to get more eyeballs on it. Um, do you have any other kind of practical advice along those lines that our listeners should pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, I, I I teach a whole 15 week semester course on digital security and and well, you got about 30 that, seconds to you know yeah, teach that course know. right now. No. <laughs> I mean, part of that's just about switching everything off, you know. But I mean, the, mm. the the place that we come to switching off all the apps that track you in different ways on your phones that's one way to do it. On online, you can turn off certain settings on on different platforms so that they don't track you as much. But, you know, the place that we end up at, at the end of my digital security class is that those individual responses are never enough, right? If you right. if you want to use the technology in any way, once you start disabling it for your own personal digital security, then the then the app or the platform or whatever it is, it just doesn't, it doesn't work as well. It doesn't do the thing it, it says it can do. And so it, what I, you know, what we end up talking about at the end of those 15 weeks in my class is, is how we need structural solutions. We need big solutions that affect the whole platform, that affect everyone. Um, but, you know, thinking structurally is not, it's not, it's not our A game here in the United <laughs> States. We, we really prefer to talk about individuals and individual responses. So mm, it's a good point. 
Um, well, let's let's talk about your amazing new book, uh, Nice White Ladies, that was just released. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, who did you write this book for, and what do you hope they will do after reading it? Yeah, I, I wrote this book for everyone, really. It, the direct address is really for white women, um, like me, people who are raised to be white and, and gendered femme. But, but white women have such an outsized... Uh, impact on the culture and on uh, certainly on American society that I wrote it for everyone because even people who are not <laughs> in the subject position, as we say in academia, and not uh, white women mm -hmm. uh, still are affected by white women. So many people have had a mom who was a white woman, may not be a white woman themselves, have, have married someone, have been in a relationship with some, or are just inundated by a culture in which, you know, white women are often the center of that culture. So I really wrote it for everyone who wanted to understand kind of what's going on in the culture at the moment around the idea of white women. Yeah, I I think that the, the title is very evocative of what we expect, especially us progressives with, um, you know, far right white women and Karen's and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, but you're it's, it's not just those white women you're talking about. In fact, you do talk a lot about progressive, uh, you know, wellness centered uh, white women and the effect that they have on in institutionalized racism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I. I really, it would be uh, a misunderstanding of the work to just say that it's about women on the far right or even women who don't think of themselves as being on the far right, but maybe voted for Trump, I don't know, twice. Mm. <laughs> um, but but I'm much more, um, I, I guess I'm equally concerned with women, you know, like myself, who consider themselves on the left side of the political spectrum, whether we call ourselves Democrats or progressives or whatever. I think that there are a lot of ways that we white women do a lot of damage in the culture. Um, and we have to start taking that into consideration. One of the places I talk about that is through um, the wellness culture. And that's a, it's a place where we, we white women spend a lot of money. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. And I really began to sort of dive into that because I wanted to know, have sort of a deeper understanding of what it was, what's going on with the wellness industry. And part of what, part of what I found is that, that first of all, there's some discussion of this in mainstream um, media outlets, but it often gets framed as wellness has a race problem. And, and by that, they often mean that there aren't enough women of color, Black women or Latina women, Indigenous women who are involved in the wellness industry. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to take a slightly different tack, which is to say, well, who who is the main target and the main audience for wellness culture? And what are they getting out of it? What is it that that's being marketed and sold and, and, and enjoyed in that culture? And part of what I looked at was the way that whiteness and wellness get talked about together. So part of that, mm. uh, you know, comes through in things like clean eating. The whole idea of purity around food is a, is one that has a really long history going back to sort of, you know, um, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and, you know, mm -hmm. sort of regulations around, um, you know, healthy food and that sort of thing. But the way that clean eating gets talked about today, it's really has to do with this kind of purity, you know, in the language about cleanses and that sort of thing. And I, I make the argument that those are really um, 
that's really language that's coded as geared for white women. It's white women who both desire and seek out the kind of cleanse uh, products and rhetoric and that sort of thing. And, and part of what I argue is happening there is that we're being sold something that that caters especially to us in a particular kind of way in the culture. And part of that is about, um, you know, the, the structural position that white women find ourselves in. In some ways, we're less powerful than straight white men in mm-hmm. this culture. And we're often managing up to them as bosses or partners or whatever, because they have more social power. At the same time, we're often managing down to other women, people of color um, in our orbit. And I think that that takes a certain kind of cycle psychic toll. And I think that's part of what people are going to the wellness industry to recover from is that Mm. kind of structural position. There's a, there's a deeper argument about whiteness in this too, which is that there's something about, you know, if we think about whiteness as a made up category, it's, it's socially constructed, as we say in sociology, um, it takes some kind of energy. It takes some sort of psychic energy to wed yourself to that category because it is so made up. And I think that that too takes a kind of psychic toll on us eventually. It's the same point that James Baldwin made when he was talking about um, white people and believing the lie of whiteness, you know, and sort of the toll that it takes on us. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, you, that's fascinating. And you talk in your book, uh, you give historical and modern day examples of how this all manifests in our society. Um, what are some other important points that we should all know about white women's roles in propagating racism and white supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I talk a little bit about the historical role that white women have played in in shoring up white supremacy. And I think one of the most telling examples in you know the last century was the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, there's been a lot of controversy in recent days about taking down Confederate monuments, but what not everybody realizes is that those Confederate monuments, almost all of them exist because of the activism and fundraising efforts of white women mm. who were committed to the cause of the Confederacy. And it wasn't immediately after the end of the Civil War. It was closer to um, the 1900s through the 1920s when most of these um, monuments got erected and then into the, the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement when, right. when many of them went up, right? And, and I knew it wasn't that timeline. That, I didn't know that it was uh, led by white women mostly. Yep. And it wasn't just, you know, that they raised money to put up these uh, monuments, the statues. Uh, very closely tied to that was a campaign that, that should resonate with listeners for today, which is that there was a, a campaign for school curricula throughout the United States to teach the Civil War through a lost cause lens. So in other words, you know, when um, uh, Brian Stevenson, right, who created the Equal Justice Initiative that and the Museum for Lynching in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, when he says that, you know, the North won the war, the military war, but the South won the narrative war, like they won the, the telling of the Civil War. And White women of the United Daughters of the Confederacy were at the forefront of that campaign. So part of the reason we have Confederate monuments today is because of white women. And if you, you know, 
continue through history, you see the same thing happening in the 1950s and 60s when there was an into the 70s when they were pushed for school integration. White women were at the forefront of those fights to keep black children out of the schools that their children went to. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I experienced this in my own family. It wasn't my mother so much, but it was my father when I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, and there was a big um, school desegregation case, uh, Cisneros versus Corpus Christi ISD. And I was meant to be on a bus the, the following school year. And my father said, no daughter of mine is getting on a school bus and moved us four hours north to a suburb of Houston where I went to an all white high school. You know, so it's these fights are things that I've lived through too, you know, so it feels very personal to me in a lot of ways. Wow, yeah. Um, and Growing up in Texas, now we see in the news just a couple of days ago about um, literally banning books that are talking about race and, uh, as you mentioned, all of the right-wing you know, anti-critical race theory, even though they don't really know what critical race theory is, but using it as sort of a blanket term to uh, uh, ban all conversation about race, which... which <laughs> Just so so important. Um, yeah, it's it's really kind of shocking, isn't it? I really mean, because shocking. The, because you're you're absolutely right that pe the people who are so opposed to critical race theory have no idea what that actually is, which is a a legal theory, right? Kimberly Crenshaw was one of the founders of that, but it's it's not even it's not even the threat that they th they make it out to be. There's no one in K through 12 education in the United States that's teaching something as esoteric as critical race theory. It's simply not happening. So, you know, it's, re it's really become a red herring, but I mean, I think the important thing to understand about this particular red herring um, is that it's being used you know, to to really center white people's feelings about things. And, and you know, I mean, one of the... Um, one of the pieces of legislation, I believe it was in Texas, was talking about there couldn't be any material that made children feel guilty um, right. or that or that taught, you know, that the Klan was morally wrong. And it, it just it's um, it's mind boggling, really, that white people have such a need and apparent desire to have their feelings protected at all costs, even if it means denying the actual history of our country. I mean, I just think that, you know, we who are raised to be white need to toughen up a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it was Joy Reid that recently shared something on her Instagram, um, but I'm not sure she's responsible for the quote, but it's um, that we, uh, we teach slavery as black history and we don't teach it as white history. Yeah. Um, and uh, and these conversations, like the the stuff that you talk about in the book, um, the as we said earlier, the challenges not just to conservative women, because all mm -hmm. of our listeners are going to be like, yeah, yeah, we we want to dunk on them; they're the worst. But all of us, you know, uh, need to have the imperfect conversations about race in our country um, mm -hmm. if if we are going to be the champions for racial justice that we we aspire to be. So. Um, yeah, yeah and absolutely. I think it's not it's not only about um, having those uncomfortable conversations, but it's also the next step is is actually following through on what we believe in. I mean, I think one of the other important ways that white women are implicated in these systems of inequality that just keep 
you know, getting perpetuated generation after generation is, is the way that we make decisions about our children and, and where they go to school, for yeah. example. So, I mean, it's not, it's no longer the case that you're going to see white women out with signs, you know, uh, protesting the integration of schools because those decisions are being made in much more subtle ways behind the scenes. But white women are still, you know, trying to hoard opportunities in various ways for their children at the expense of other children. I mean, part of what I argue in the book is that what, what we've got to learn to do is to expand the circle of caring, you know, expand the, the circle of people that we care about. Part of what we do when we form families, including all white families, is that we draw a circle around the people that we care about, right? It's just these people I have to look after. Mm. Um, and I think that that creates a kind of inward, insular, you know, um, anti-collective, sort of approach to things. And I, and I think we've just got to have a wider lens. I mean, I was really hoping that perhaps naively that the COVID, you know, pandemic would help us do that, you know, sort of say, oh, we're all connected. It's, it's mm. uh, silly to put up divisions, but it kind of hasn't gone that way. <laughs> no, I think it's the opposite. I, I, th you know, that that's, I think about that a lot because already uh were so divided and isolated and um and literally sticking us in our own homes uh yeah. made it even worse so um you know so hopefully we'll we'll be able to start having these conversations and expanding that circle as you said um i i want to talk about we we mentioned uh karen's uh briefly early yeah. And, um, you know, viral Karen videos definitely uh, do a job of exposing the cruelty and entitlement and blatant racism that black and brown people face from white women all over the country. Um, but you go deeper in your book with something that you call monster theory. Uh, can you talk about this and explain how you would like uh, white women to seize this moment? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of pushback to the whole Karen's meme, which in some ways I think is understandable, right? It's it's kind of an uncomfortable moment to be a white woman, um, just because there have been so many recent examples of the bad behavior of white women that have been caught on camera and then shared on social media. Um, and part of why I started thinking about monster theory is that um, last year at Halloween, 2020 was the first year that there were, as far as I know, Karen masks for sale at Halloween. And I thought, oh, literally, we're becoming monsters in the culture. And there's a whole mm. you know, sociological theory about called monster theory. And basically what it says is that once someone in the culture gets designated as a monster, it's telling us something about society. It's telling us, oh, there's something about this person or this kind of person that we fear, that we are threatened by, that is trying to tell us something about who we are as a culture. So I started thinking about the Karens as monsters and sort of what they tell us about the culture. And I think that part of what the memes are telling us is that, you know, our time is up as white women to continue this kind of bad behavior, which the Karen memes have us known for now. It's just simply not acceptable to call 911 on Black people who are simply going about their lives. You know, so I think that there's a way in which um, the Karen meme has been a very good check on mm -hmm. the sort of unchecked power of white women in the society. 
at the same time, I'm really suspicious of, you know, frankly, white men who are creating white women as monsters, right? So the, the mask for the, the Karen Halloween mask was created by a white guy who was the artist behind it. Um, and I just, I just question how the monstering of Karen's slides into misogyny. And I don't think that it's, it should give us a pass. Those of us who are raised to be white women. So, Oh, that's misogyny. So we shouldn't take it seriously. I think we should pay attention to the mix of both our bad behavior and the misogyny that's getting directed at us. That's the interesting part um, as a sociologist. Um, but I think that for those of us, you know, who are white women in society, it really means that we've got to have a real reckoning with the way that we've been in society. You know, Carolyn Bryant was a woman who pointed her finger at Emmett Till and said that he had right. either assaulted her or looked at her or accosted her. Um, and he ended up dead, you know, with a cotton gin fan around his neck, horribly, cruelly murdered. And decades later, Carolyn Bryant, now Dunham, recanted that story, right. you know? And I think that um, that the Karen memes are a kind of mirror holding up uh, to us who are white women saying, this is this is the kind of monster you risk becoming in the society if you don't have a reckoning and change the way that that you're being in the world. Hmm. Um, we uh, just a few weeks ago, we recently uh, had Heather McGee on to talk about her book, The Sum of Us, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's a, a big fan, spectacular big fan. book, huge fan of hers as well. Um, and she talks about how racism keeps all of us from having nice things, as she says. You also talk about that. You talk about the price of whiteness in your book and the majority of white women who consistently vote against their own interests and for the GOP. Can you talk about the evolving research around this? Yeah, there's um, there's some great research on this. And I want to point first to um, the work by uh, – sociologist and physician, Jonathan Metzl, who's at Vanderbilt University. He wrote a brilliant book called Dying of Whiteness. And part of what he argues in that book is that there are ways in which certain policies become so associated with white identity that, that people are willing to literally um, risk their lives and die, become sick and die, as long as they can you know, cling to those policies. Um, and he talks about guns, about education, mm -hmm. um, and about healthcare, right? The, AC, right? the ACA, sometimes known as Obamacare. Um, and he taught, like, he talked to one individual who lives in a state where they um, did not adopt um, the ACA and is dying of liver disease. If he lived one state over in a state that adopted the ACA, he could get life-saving treatment and care. Um, and Metzl asks him about that, you know, and he's like, oh, I don't, I don't need that. Don't want it. I don't want my tax tax dollars going to support Mexicans and welfare queens. Mm. Right? So he's so committed to not supporting the ACA. That he's willing to harm his own health and to shorten his life, frankly. And, and, you know, this researcher found this time and time again. And part of what I'm doing in the Nice White Ladies books is sort of looking at the way that that's gendered, right? So not only does that apply to all white people, but there are ways in which 
it is different for white men and white women. Uh, and one of the, the things that I teased out in the epidemiological data is that there's an increase in suicide rates for middle-aged white women. So it's a particular age range. I believe it's 45 to 54. There's an increase um, and it's really, it's a huge increase. A lot of researchers have pointed to opioids and alcohol yeah. as contributing factors. And, and we know that there are gender differences in suicide rates, right? That men tend to choose weapons more often and women tend to choose pills and alcohol more often. So that's part of what's at play. Um, and there's something about gender going on, right? There's a way in which um, the kinds of professions that we choose as women are often helping professions, which end up being a certain kind of stressor as well. Right. Um, and then for women who are stay-at-home moms, I think that there's another kind of stress related to that. So those are the gender aspects of it. But I was trying to tease out what, what are the ways that being a white woman in particular contribute to this spike in suicide rates among white women in middle age. And for that, I drew on my own personal history with my mother who ended her own life by suicide at age 48, mm. also involved with pills and alcohol. Um, but I think that for me, that there's something, certainly there's a gender story that any, any of us who have considered ourselves feminists or read any of the gender literature familiar with that. But I think there's something about whiteness too. My mother was a stay-at-home mom you know, she, after I was born, she never worked again in the paid labor force. And I think that there was a, a way in which that being a white upper middle class housewife was a kind of dead end, was a trap for her. Hmm. And part of that was about gender, but I think part of that was also about whiteness. That is not a, that is not an ideal that black and Latino and indigenous women generally strive for, right? They don't, they have always worked and have always seen motherhood as as involving the paid labor force. But I think for white women who were sold this bill of goods, you know, starting from the 1950s, that the prize, the big, the big social goal was to marry a man who was wealthy enough so that you didn't have to work, you could stay home. And I think it's such a, such a trap, you know, mm. I think, and I think that part of the trap is whiteness, believing that that will, that, that is the reward for this particular kind of white femininity. Well, I'm, uh, so sorry to hear uh, about your mom and her struggles. And, and, you know, that's powerful that you bring that to your work, too, and you're able to share that. So thank you. Thank um, you. So uh, a couple more quick questions. Maybe not quick, but this next one is, is very important because, um, you know, our listeners are all about taking action. And as we talked about before, I hope that for all of us white people, we're always willing to challenge ourselves to look at how we're complicit and even active in supporting these systems of white supremacy as we are actively fighting for racial justice. So your book shows how white women can be more than just allies. Um, how can we help dismantle white supremacy? And I know yeah. your book is geared towards white women, but I'll say as a white guy, I, I use that big we, like all of us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The white guys can come along with us. <laughs> I would like to. Um, um, I, think there, I think there are a lot of ways that we can um, start doing the work of dismantling white supremacy. I think just to begin, I think that one of the places that we get stuck, there's a great, a great line, and I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but a great line from Ta-Nehisi Coates, mm -hmm. you know, where he talks about, I think it's in his most recent book, where he talks about the way that white people uh, talk about racism, and they say it's, um, 
you know, it's like gravity. You know, we, we treat it like it's a law of physics. Like, well, it's just white supremacy. What are you going to do about it? But, you know, the fact is, historically, it's, it's relatively new. And that, to me, gives me hope because it means if it was created at some point in history, it can end at some point in history. Mm. Um, and so I think that's the first thing to, to acknowledge is that it's, it's addressable. We can do things that do not perpetuate white supremacy and then in fact dismantle it. So in the conclusion of the book, I have eight different steps, but I'll boil it down to the sort of essence of those. The, the first thing that I suggest people do is start taking an inventory, start paying attention to where you spend your time, your money, and your energy. Yeah. Where does that go? Does it go to predominantly white institutions? If it does, find ways to start divesting from those predominantly white institutions. If that means your job, the place that you go to, um, a worship service, whatever it is, mm -hmm. start paying attention to the rooms that you're in. Where am I putting my time, my money, and my energy? And once we start doing that, we can start to divest. And I use that language really purposefully and intentionally. The first political activity that I was ever involved in were protests against the apartheid government while I was sitting in Austin, Texas. But part of that campaign for people who are too young to remember it, was uh, a really focused attention on the apartheid government on divestment. And that meant no one travel there, don't spend your tourist dollars there. Mm -hmm. It also meant putting uh, pressure on companies. You know, there was a big campaign to keep big corporations from doing business with South Africa. And when they continued to do it, we would show up on their doorstep and protest against those corporations. And I think that there are ways in which we can divest our time, our money, our energy from predominantly white institutions in the same kind of way that we um, did when we were protesting South Africa. I'll give you my most controversial take, um, Ooh, okay. which, is, <laughs> which is that one of those institutions we have to rethink how we're energizing are the white only families that we create. I said earlier about expanding our circle of caring. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has to include rethinking kinship. If, if we are, I'm going to speak about white women here, if we are creating all white families and then we are hoarding opportunities within those families and passing on um, wealth say even home equity to those uh, white children that we've created in this all white family, we are part of the problem. We have got to rethink uh, the transmission of generational wealth among white families, because that's one of the key things that contributes to the wealth gap yeah. that we have in the country. And it, we can either do it individually in these kinds of ways, or we can do, you know, big structural changes with supporting reparations. But those are the those are the most controversial recommendations. I have. <laughs> well, um, I encourage everyone to to read all uh, all of your book and get the full eight points um, and get into action on those. So, um, one last question: the question that we ask everyone on our show before you go, what gives you the most hope for our future? Um, you know, I I have to say that seeing people who are willing to do the work of divesting from whiteness gives me tremendous hope. Hmm. 
Well, I hope that's a lot of people who are listening to this show and and elsewhere. I, I wish you all the success on your book. It just came out like a week ago. Is Tuesday, just this week. Just this week. Just this week. So um, it's available everywhere now. Again, the book is called Nice White Ladies. And Jesse Daniels, thank you so much for spending the time with us. My extreme pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Our Reasons for Hope is so exciting because it's all friends of our podcast. Oh, it's a good point. Very good point. Yeah. You want, why don't you start? What's your reason for hope? Uh, Stacey Abrams is probably my reason for hope every week, but yeah. I'll like verbally call her out this week. She continues to mobilize voters in Virginia. She was there this weekend out stumping for Terry McAuliffe. And of course, you know, she just has gone beyond Georgia, beyond Virginia. She really is the face of the Democratic Party right now mm. and is inspiring a lot of people to get out to vote. She's the perfect example of how a, a loss can be a win. And I think somebody at uh, one of the pastors at one of the churches she uh, was speaking at in Virginia over the weekend said something along the lines of, you know, your call, like, I'm glad that you weren't elected governor of Georgia because your calling is here to be with us right now. Mm. And um, this is, you know, I always, my hope for this podcast is we mobilize tons of people to like get involved and volunteer, but also to run. And running is really hard and sometimes you lose, but that's not the end of a story. It's just the beginning. So yeah. uh, Stacey Abrams is my reason for hope this week. And every week. <laughs> and every week. And yes, as you said, a great friend of our podcast. Yeah. I mean, we can say that she did our podcast once, but that makes us besties. <laughs> Go back and listen. <laughs> and and speaking uh, about our besties, um, our friend Alyssa Milano is uh, testifying before Congress uh, on Thursday in support of the ERA. Oh, um, fantastic. Yeah, so um, this gives me hope because uh, I'm sure many people know that the ERA has not been ratified um, as of yet. And one of the first things that the state of Virginia did, the Commonwealth of Virginia, I should say, uh, did when we got the trifecta was to be the last state needed to right. ratify the ERA. So now there is um, hearings that are being done. Uh, there is uh, the, the statute of limitation. The time limit has expired, but there's ways to do a simple vote to extend the time limit. And that's what they're talking about right now. Um, so we are closer to actually getting um, the Equal Rights Amendment passed. And, uh, of course, Alyssa Milano has been a champion for this um, mm -hmm. and uh, has done a lot of good making people aware of this because a lot of people just assumed that it was passed. It was such a big deal many years ago. And, um, and it's kind of out of our lexicon and out of our minds, uh, in some ways. But, um, mm -hmm. uh, the fact that only cisgendered males have their rights codified in our constitution really should change in uh, 2021. And, and I'm hopeful that it will. All right. Thank you so much, Alyssa. I can't wait to watch her testify. I'm sure it'll be on C-SPAN. Thanks so 
much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. Watch C-SPAN. <laughs> What's your reason for hope? We want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org or send us a tweet at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. Virginia, less than two weeks left. How We Win is a proud member of the MSW Media Network. We really appreciate you being here with us and we'll be back with some more next Wednesday. MSW.